0: I came across a a stirring uh, quotation this week, and I want to begin our time of study of God's Word um, by reading this quotation. If you'd just give your attention to it and listen carefully. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on the left... The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. End of quotation. That wasn't Jonathan Edwards. Nor was it some other person of Puritan ilk. As many of you know, that was none other than Jesus Himself. Matthew chapter 25. Indeed, awful words, stirring words, for some troubling words, if not for all of us in one sense, troubling words. And I have to say, God help us to have ears to hear, as the Bible would say. Well, in recent days, we've been looking on Sunday mornings at such statements by Jesus and Jesus' apostles, His delegates, and we've seen some very stirring statements, and we've done this so that we can understand. We've done this so that we can understand something of the magnitude of what it means to fall into the hands of the living God. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31. We've done this in part to to understand something of the magnitude of what Jesus Christ paid for when He absorbed the full wrath of God on Calvary's cross for everyone who would ever trust in Him. And we've been doing this to understand something of the magnitude of what our responsibility is as a church when it comes to being the pillar and the support of the truth. Remember, that's one of the ways the church is described. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, I believe it is. The church is called the pillar and the support of the truth. As the church, we're supposed to promote the truth, we're supposed to defend the truth, and certainly we've seen That there is truth to be heard and truth to be known and truth to be compromised when it comes to the truth about heaven and hell. And so I'll let you know it's been one of my pastoral agendas. Yes, to understand the severity of God's judgment. Yes, to understand the greatness of Christ's atonement. But for us as a church to understand something of what we need to understand so that we can promote it and so that we can defend it, so that we can be a real church and not just a club, not just a religious organization, that we can understand the doctrine of hell, the teaching, the teaching from Jesus about hell, so that we could be the pillar and support of the truth regarding hell, regarding eternity. And so it's been interesting for us to go through these things, and today what we're going to do is conclude this series called Hell Matters, and, and we're going to do that by, as promised, looking at some questions that have surfaced. But, before we do that, I think it's appropriate for us to look once again to the voice of Jesus, to His apostles, and even His prophets, and, and, and do this. Do something that sometimes we're not very good at doing when it comes to Trying to be doctrinally astute. And among other things, we've been trying to do that. And that is, take note of the compassion that's involved regarding people facing condemnation. Yes, we want to be faithful when it comes to the truth. And yes, we want to do that, but we also would do well, I think, if we paid attention also to the way Jesus was burdened for people, the way the apostles were burdened for people, and the way, even if you go through the Old Testament, the prophets, even though many times they were pronouncing condemnation for rebellion against God, there was a very, very, very compassionate sense. And sometimes we don't sense that. And so I I would like to have you look at some texts of Scripture with me as we contemplate wanting to be faithful. It would be good if we would be faithful to Christ and imitating not only His theology, if you will, but imitating His compassion. So let's look at Luke 19 and Luke 23 to get us started. And then there are some questions, but... This time, my prayerful sense is that, that we would make sure that we don't stop with understanding uh, trying to be faithful to Jesus' doctrine, but that we would also seek to imitate His, his heart, if you would. Um, he wasn't matter-of-fact about people facing difficulties, uh, not to mention facing judgment. As you contemplate what it means for people to breathe their last breath, As you contemplate what it means for people to face. What it means to fall into the hands of the living God. It would be good for us to look at these passages. And and ask that God might stir our hearts. Not all of these passages will deal with hell in particular. But they do deal with calamity. And they deal with with judgment. And they deal with in some senses condemnation. So I think we get a good flavor and a good sense of. In Luke chapter 19, verse 41 down to verse 44, we, we see these tearful words of Jesus. I'm asking that God might help us to have such a kind of burden when we're thinking about what people face. In Luke 19, 41, we read these words. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now you are hidden from your eyes. They are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Like I said, the sampling of the passages don't all necessarily pertain to eternal condemnation, but they certainly pertain to some kind of judgment. And Jesus doesn't just give them the cold, hard facts. He does give them the cold, hard facts. But as we see, it does say in verse 41, as he contemplates the city and its unbelief and rejection of him, it does, in fact, say he wept over it. let's seek to be faithful to Christ in embracing His doctrines. Let's also seek to be faithful to Christ by trying to imitate His demeanor when it comes to people facing judgment. You know what I'm saying? That would be a good prayer for us today. Let's look at another passage regarding his compassion, and how about Luke chapter 23? You know how it is. We, we we tend to go one way or the other, you know, and we have Jesus, the perfect God-man whom we will never be, even though we'll see him one day as believers and be made like him. Uh, yes, there'll be that sense of perfection, but, it, but it, it's not he's going to be compassionate and unfaithful to the truth. It's not that he's going to be faithful to the truth and somehow cold and harsh. He really, really cares. And I find myself wanting to be one way or the other. And that would be probably our natural fallen tendency. In Luke chapter 23, verse 28, let's, let's see there what he says or what it says about him and then from him. In verse 28 it says, But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Notice the compassion involved here. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the beast that never nursed. Then verse 30, Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. But there is this compassionate sense. Daughters of Jerusalem, weep for yourselves. You're the one I'm concerned about. You're the one who's in trouble. And maybe now we can turn to an apostle. Let's go to Romans chapter 9, verses 1, 2, 3. Romans chapter 10. This one really seems to be unmatched when it comes to apostles and, and Paul's burden for his countrymen, his fellow Jews. To state things the way he states them here is, is at a level of maybe sanctification that I haven't reached. <laughs> there seems to be a kind of burden here for, for his fellow Jews that, that I've not experienced. That there is this, this genuine burden for people to be reconciled to god and in romans chapter 9 verse 2 let's just go down to verse 2 he says that i have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for i could wish that i myself were accursed and cut off from christ for the sake of my brothers my kinsmen according to the flesh I know that verse. I can translate it from Greek to English. Maybe not English to Greek, but I got a pretty good handle on the verse. But I'm not so sure it has much of a handle on me. This tremendous burden for people who have not been reconciled to God, and it is so heart-thumping that these kinds of words come out of his mouth. And then in chapter 10, verse 1, brothers, this again, not so formal kind of interaction, this this big-hearted, burden kind of talk. In chapter ten verse one, brothers, my heart's desire, core of my being, this is who I am, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Do do you pray for people's salvation? Some of you might not. Some of you might not because you think it's theologically inappropriate because you believe in the sovereignty of God. I remind you of where chapter 10 falls in the book of Romans, just after the most intense Christ-exalting sovereignty of God passage you could ever possibly imagine. In fact, if you think about it, if you believe in the sovereignty of God, you have to ask God to do what only God can do for God to save people. It actually is a great affirmation of the sovereignty of God. In one sense, only people who believe in the sovereignty of God should pray for people's salvation. But see, now I'm in my comfort zone again, talking about theology. (laughs) And I want to be there. But I'm also suggesting today that it would be good and right and fitting for us to say, God, please help us to, yes, understand theology, but to feel a sense of burden that would be genuine, that would be Christ-honoring and Christ-exalting, that we would pray like this. Let's look at one, two other sections regarding this and then to some questions. One would be from Jeremiah the prophet. In Jeremiah nine, Jeremiah thirteen, Jeremiah fourteen—just some samplings of someone who who uh, could could dish it out, so to speak—and yet just something of the tears involved, and something of the, the the request to God, and something of the emotion involved, because we're dealing with people, and we're dealing with condemnation. Maybe we could put it in these terms: we're dealing with with a true sense of dealing with fellow image bearers in the image of God and, 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 and to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jeremiah ends up saying things like this in Jeremiah nine one. I realize some of you don't know where that is in the Bible. Um, that's probably my fault as a pastor. So just listen. <laughs> Jeremiah 9, one. Oh, that my head were waters, that my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Jeremiah 13:17 But if you will not listen my soul will weep in secret for your pride my eyes will weep bitterly and run down with tears because the Lord's flock has been taken captive Jeremiah 13:17 Jeremiah 14:17 You shall say to them this word Let my eyes run down with tears night and day and let them not cease for the virgin daughter of my people is shattered with a great wound with a very grievous blow just trying to get the flavor of the tears involved, at least. and Maybe one other frank exhortation from the book of Jude. And you can find Jude right before the book of Revelation. And you see in Jude 23, there's this frank exhortation. But it's filled with, no doubt, compassion and genuine burden. Not indifference, not somehow writing things off. In Jude 23, it says, Save others. This intense challenge to believers. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. But how about that? Save others by snatching them out of the fire. Could be a whole sermon in and of itself. And a study. Yeah we can't save ourselves. We can't save others. But there's a sense in which. And Jude understands those things. God does use human instrumentality. And we don't give up on people. And we don't write them off. And so there's this command mode. Urgency. Fervency. To the point where he even says it like this. Maybe to shake us up a little bit. In our little system. And to say save others. So again. Let, let, let's let's seek to be the pillar and support of the truth, because that's what the church is. But let's not do so in a way that somehow is maybe subhuman, maybe better yet, sub-Christian. You know what I'm saying? I literally say God help us with that I want to look at some of these questions but I, I, just, I just want to pray so let, let's do that and ask you to pray and ask God to stir you up Lord your word is so clear in so many ways even regarding condemnation maybe in one sense especially regarding condemnation We've seen it everywhere. We've seen it all over the place. And we've seen it, first and foremost, coming out of the mouth of Jesus, the Savior. But I repent of my lack of fidelity, my lack of faithfulness when it comes to to feeling the sense and the burden of, of what's really at stake. God help us. Help us to have a fire, a passion, a brokenness, a burden that wouldn't hide itself, that wouldn't be snuffed out somehow in the name of our good doctrine. That we would not be so foolish, that we would not be so naive. Lord, help us to have open Bibles and to keep reading our Bibles and to keep seeing Jesus Christ and to see, yes, his teaching and also to see his heart that he might see fit. God, that you might see fit to use us in in this city, that you might see fit to use us as people who do have a burden and do seek to show compassion, that we would open our mouths and speak the truth but that we would speak the truth in love and that you would do great things that would emphasize your greatness and your great saving power. Have these be unsettling days in this regard. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your patience, even with us. It is good to know that you care about us and that, that you finish what you start so we ask that you would, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I don't know about you, but I feel better. <laughs> My intent was just to be done with it, and then there's too many passages that, that, are, that are too impactful, and it is so good that God doesn't leave us where we are. It's so good to know that he promises to finish what he starts, that he'll lose none of us, and even in the sanctification process, it's just really good to, to, to experience that, And at least it has been for me. And uh, maybe you're a week behind me because I get to study ahead of time, um, but I'm going to pray that you feel the same kind of burden and maybe a hundred times more uh, that God might see fit to, to use us. Well, I do have a list of questions. I think I have seven questions here. Um, these are questions that were asked of me. Um, no, none of you emailed questions, so... Uh, Thank you to those of you who asked me questions and i'm going to use those this morning As we round this out and bring things to a close. Hopefully some of these will be helpful for everyone Um, I think there's somewhat of a precedent for this given the fact that the corinthians asked so many questions of paul And he wrote back to them and answered their questions Uh, and so I think we'll look at these seven that i have here or at least give it a shot the first question i have written down is what is the basis for punishment being ongoing when you're talking about eternal condemnation what's the basis for punishment being ongoing we did talk about that but it was still asked of me and so uh, let, let's look at that from from a couple of different angles um, the first angle would be that the rebellion seems to be ongoing let me reformulate the question So how can we say that God is going to condemn people and he's going to send them to hell and hell is going to last forever where they will suffer forever? And we saw multiple texts like that. Well, why would God have it last forever when no one has lived forever, sinning forever? So how could that be a just punishment? And I think the first way to answer the question, and I think it's already been mentioned, but I'll say it again, and that would be that the rebellion still continues. We have no indication in Scripture that the heart has changed. Um, And if you're still at odds with God, even though you're under bondage, you're still worthy of condemnation. One text I think is helpful in this regard, even though it's not talking about hell, it is talking about judgment. And that text is Revelation 16.21. And we didn't look at this, and so I thought it was good to to go ahead and include the question and, and look at Revelation 16.21. And, and there, at that phase in the book of Revelation, we're, we're in the Great Tribulation, and we're seeing that all heaven is breaking loose. Did you catch that? Come on. We need a little lightheartedness. We're talking about this topic. And all judgment is coming. Uh, unprecedentedly so, and we see judgment, and we see that the judgment, judgment is not leading unbelievers to repent at this phase. In fact, they're even more angry with God, and I think by way of principle we can learn something about hell from this kind of judgment passage, given that hell is judgment as well. In Revelation 16, 21, it says, "...and great hailstones, about a hundred pounds each, fell from heaven on people." And here's what I underlined, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. So at least in principle, you can see judgment from God and judgment from God not leading to repentance, but actually leading to further rebellion. They're cursing God. So if we can take that principally, that would at least give us maybe a hint as to why hell would never end. And again, we could theologize a little bit as well and say, well, there's no idea of a new heart, no idea of conversion, no idea of a new birth. We're still dead in trespasses and sins if we're not converted, and that would fit as well. Maybe looking at it from a little bit different angle, and this was mentioned as well, but that would be the, the, the significance of the one offended. And I think this is, a little, this is less textually based. I think the Revelation 16 thing is pretty, pretty textual. I'm pretty confident about that. Now we're theologizing a little bit, but to say, consider the one who's been offended. This is not a fellow human being that's been offended. This is none other than the very one who created you to imitate him, to be in his image, created to give him glory and honor. And what do you do? You rebel against him and say, no, I think I'm God. And I'm comfortable with that as an explanation. I'm not going to die for that explanation, but that would at least fit, uh, I think. In, In the very helpful book on missions that some of you have read, the book called Let the Nations Be Glad, there's just a great quotation from John Piper in that book regarding this matter, where he says, The essential thing is that degrees of blameworthiness come not from how long you offend dignity, but from how high the dignity is that you offend. And again, that's not scriptural, so I wouldn't want to go to the wall for it. But again, seeing the magnitude of the one offended. We do see some of this in our culture regarding uh, taking a life of someone. Certain dignitaries, it would mean your death, no questions asked. But again, it's just a human kind of comparison, and I wouldn't want to push that too far. Maybe one other angle would be, uh, you have no indication when you look at the scriptures that there's going to be provision that would allow for pardon there's there's no there's no atonement to be made you still the debt is still there and and what's going to remove the debt you don't have any indication as it would be true for a believer let's move on to another question that someone asked how does the love of god relate to the reality of eternal condemnation how does the love of god relate to the reality of eternal condemnation You've heard this one before. Maybe not formulated in that sense. If God is love, how could he ever damn someone? Not to mention for eternity. Okay? It's a really good question. Sometimes it's asked by people who don't ask it in a very good way. Oftentimes it's asked by people who just want to put God on trial And they don't really know anything about the Bible, but it just sounds like something good because they heard it in a freshman English class where the professors are so brilliant that they're teaching freshman English. But anyway, someone once said to me that there's more havoc wreaked in the English department when it comes to people who don't really know what they believe but profess to be a Christian than any other department in the entire university. Don't know if that's true or not. I was an English minor. I liked it so much. (laughs) If God is love, then what would be with this business of eternal condemnation? I just want to remind you in all seriousness, even though it sounds trite and I say it quite often, please remember that love is not God's only attribute. If you begin reading the Bible, you, you begin seeing something that comes up again and again and again and again. And that is God's inflexible righteousness. It's unmistakable, almost hauntingly so. I remember reading through the Psalms for scripture reading. I think we uh, for, for years we just started chapter 1, went all the way through 150, and we did it at least two times. Uh, and since i've been here at the church and now we look at some different ones at different times but it just kept coming up again and again and again and i'd read the psalms before but i thought this is this is absolutely amazing and to, to to worship god because it's the worship manual for his righteousness almost troublingly so but then you just start reading the bible all over the place and whether or not it uses the word righteous or not and it uses it a ton God is a righteous God. He is the just judge. He is the sovereign king. And by the way, that is what provides this, this backdrop to see something of the amazing nature of God's love. It shows us something about the amazing nature of the gospel. And so God is love. The greatest place where you're going to see His love in giving His Son to satisfy His righteousness his justice And so if we would just read our bibles at least we we would see that that's not a very helpful question If it's being asked in the wrong sense Maybe also and I, I would like you to turn to john 3 18. I think it would be helpful We all know john 3 16 Most of us know john three eighteen, but maybe this will help you in in dialoguing with a friend Or even answering the question yourself If God is a God of love, then how can he condemn anyone? Maybe as you're turning to John 3, I would also like to remind you of something very important. um, And that would be, when when you read about this God in the Bible, uh, you you find out rather quickly that he's not on trial. Okay? Um, We are. And God's not on trial. And... um, This is really important. Look for it in the Bible. That this God is free. He's free. He is free to do whatever he wants to do. And that is one of the privileges and prerogatives for you if you happen to be God. Seriously. Something that simple is really, really profound he is free. And you say, but I thought we were free. Well, Maybe we are free. In one sense. We're bound by sin, enslaved to sin, Romans 6, so we're not so free. But okay, just for sake of argument, maybe we are free to a degree, but we're not as free as he is. Because none of us are God. He does what he wants to do. With that in mind, and with these kinds of things in mind, that he's not in, on trial, and he can do whatever he wants to do, let's, let's do talk about the love of God in a great text, John 3.16, where it says, for God so loved the world, and maybe I'll pause just a little bit to help you a, a bit, be a good passage to preach on sometime. It's, it's, you don't get the idea from the Greek New Testament that it's, and God so loved the world. It's that God loved the world, get this, in this way. You want to know how God loved the world? He didn't love the world in a way that we've obligated him to. And this is the way I want God to act. God loved the world like this. Okay? I know evangelists so many times, and we're just going to bleed it for all it's worth, and he so loved us. You want to know how God loves? He loves like this. It's extraordinary so we could say this is so amazing, but this is how God does it. Okay, God loved the world in this way. That He gave His only Son. Okay? He gave His unique Son. His one and only Son. There is no other Son. He, he, he chose to love us by giving His Son. And I like to say, it's the only thing that ever cost God anything. Because He's the Creator And he just speaks things into being. Well, he didn't speak his son into being because his son is the eternal son. It's costly. It's great. This is great love. That whoever believes in him, even literally, that all the believing on him ones should not perish, but have eternal life. How do we think about the love of God? We think about the love of God like this. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And read John's account again and again in 1 John and 2 John and 3 John and Revelation. And world is used in different ways, but many, many times it's used in reference to Jew and Gentile. It's all different kinds of people. The Bible doesn't teach universalism. Verse 18 is really important, though. 16 and 18. Whoever believes in him, that all the believing on him ones is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. How could he say that? Why would that be? How could that logically make sense? If we keep reading, we see, because he has not believed in the name of, here, this is really important from verse 16, the only, the unique Son of God. God is loved in an extraordinary, amazing way. By giving His Son, His one and only unique Son. Everyone who believes upon Him. But if you don't believe upon the one and only Son, there is no other way. There is no other atonement. There is no other way to be reconciled. It's not coming to God on His terms. And so this is helpful to look at in in a, in a context that's together to see how could a loving God send people to hell. Well, because that's what they deserve. Not to mention the fact that they've rejected his one and only unique son. But I find most of the time, when someone poses the question in a questioning sense, it's just it's just bumper sticker theology. They've heard it somewhere else, and they just need someone to take the time to explain some things to them about what's fair. What's just they might not believe it anyway But at least to rescue them from oprah theology Okay, and to help them understand that the bible actually lays this out in a pretty straightforward consistent way And let me love you by helping you at least understand it Let's move on now to another question and that is is hell really fair But the question goes on, and this was asked of me, and I had some good dialogue about this, I think. Is hell really fair, given that we are all sinners, and more specifically, given that we are sinners by nature? I want to have you think about that one on some different levels. Some of you just want to check out and send a text to a friend. Is hell really fair? especially when you start thinking about the fact that we're all sinners and we're all sinners by nature. Let's start on the 30,000 foot level. Is hell really fair? Well, when you read through the Bible, you see that God is just and you see that God judges people based upon their actions. Read Revelation chapter 20 and based upon their deeds, they will be condemned. Justice, 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 justice. Remember, I quoted Romans 6.23 last week. The wages, fair earnings of sin is death. And we know it's not just physical death, as Romans would have us to know and Revelation would have us to know. So, fair, it's fair. Okay? In fact, in one sense we could say, given that it's delayed, God is showing great mercy because he doesn't send us all to hell A long time ago. But this person said, no, no, that's not what I'm saying. If I'm born into sin, by nature I'm a sinner, is it really fair? And we just jumped into the deep end of the pool, by the way. Hope you have your floaties on. Romans chapter 5 teaches that we were in Adam. He was our representative. That when Adam fell, he led the human race into sin. Okay, the fancy term is federal representation. And so here's where you could say, well, I wasn't there. Nobody asked me. I've just been living a messed up life ever since I was basically born because I have a sin nature and I'm in Adam. So it's fair to bring it up. In response, what you see when it comes to judgment day and condemnation, God doesn't say, because you're in Adam and you have a sin nature, I'm going to damn you. It's based upon your actions. Uh, At the end of the day, I'm going to say, I don't know exactly how this one works but I am going to say that this is how God did it and he's God and it must have been the best way to have a federal representative or he wouldn't have done it this way. And I would suggest that it would have been the best case scenario possible. The guy had a perfect wife, come on. (laughs) Perfect everything all the time. And he led the human race into sin. But we're trying to unscrew in my mind, the inscrutable at this point in time. And then finally, I would want to add, when it comes to being in Christ and the great benefits of being in Christ, that's not based upon our actions either. And in that sense, that's not fair. It's just grace upon grace. And none of us are arguing about that. (laughs) Okay, we just rejoice in that. But it is a complicated matter and I wouldn't want to dodge the nature of its complication. Number four, on my list, what is annihilationism and why is it not right? Won't take a lot of time on this. Annihilationism is held by some who would say God may judge, hell may be real, but it certainly isn't going to last an eternity. It's just going to end and you're going to burn up, and that's how it is. And there's different kinds of annihilationism, there's the rank kind of left theology question everything about God, I'm in charge. And then there's, there are evangelicals who would believe the gospel who would also then say, I still don't think hell's going to last forever. John Stott is an annihilationist. Philip Hughes, the commentator, annihilationist. There aren't very many who say they believe the gospel, but it does happen sometimes. And they say they believe in hell, but it's eventually going to lead to your not existing. But interestingly enough, John Stott is going to say it, it's because God is God of love. So we, it's awkward. Well, can God have more attributes than just being a God of love? Two texts on this that I want you to notice. And it would be Matthew twenty-five forty-six 46 and Revelation 14. Matthew 25, 46 is Decisive. It's not the only reason to not be an annihilationist, but it's a decisive reason to not be an annihilationist. And Revelation, or excuse me, Revelation 14 as well. um, In the most emphatic way of saying forever, he does in Revelation 14. But in Matthew 25, 46, which I read at the beginning of our time together, we read these words from Jesus. And again, the best word I've come up with that I've read regarding this is the word decisive. And these will go down, they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. I say it says what it says. And you've got to do some pretty strange kinds of gymnastics to make it mean something other than what it says. The text is on the side of the historic, Christian view and that is that heaven lasts forever and hell lasts forever. And I'm just going to say I'll stick with Jesus on this one. Revelation 14 verses 10 and 11 uh, is another text we've looked at that also um, in a very, very strong way emphasizes the eternality of the condemnation that is for those who reject Christ. It is for those who are sinners and have never trusted in christ it says in verse 10 he also will drink the wine of god's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever one annihilationist i read said well that's just the smoke of the torment it doesn't mean they're being tormented and uh crack is cheap Uh and they have no rest day or night these worshippers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name it's very clear and emphatic forever and ever Revelation 20 we won't take the time to read it but in Revelation 20 verses 10 to 15 where we see Satan being condemned it's broader than Satan and it says if anyone's So it's broader than just the beast or the false prophet or the devil himself. And it lasts forever and ever. I remember the first time I met a real live annihilationist. And and I was just so naive and I hadn't read enough bad theology. I just didn't know what to say. I said... Wait a minute, wait a minute. What are you talking about? I got my Bible out, turned to Revelation chapter twenty, and I go, What about this? And I got the kind of pat on the head. But you know what? I don't want to lose that naivety. It says what it says. I think I'll go with what it says. And it really helps when history's on my side too. Let the text speak. Let the sovereign words of Jesus Christ speak. Number five, how can a person avoid hell? We looked at Psalm 212, which is one of the most amazing psalms because it's referenced of Jesus so many times, where it says, Kiss the Son. Worship the Son lest He become angry and you perish in the way for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. It's just so good. The one who's going to deal out the retribution is the very one in whom you need to cling to, to be safe from his judgment. It's awesome. It is absolutely awesome to see. Maybe one more thing I would say, and I hope it's helpful to you. You can avoid the fires of hell and getting what you deserve. For starters, by acknowledging that you deserve it. Apart from understanding that you're under the wrath of God and you deserve the wrath of God because you haven't loved Him with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, I think you're going to hell for sure because you think you're a good person. The reason God gave His Son is because no one is a good person. It starts with seeing that you're not a good person. It starts with embracing Romans 3, Psalm 14, the words of Jesus. And then kissing the Son, embracing the Son. Number six how can a person have assurance that they're not going to hell? Two ways. How can I have assurance that I'm not going to go to hell? number 1 kissing the sun, right? The work of Jesus. Remember Romans chapter 4 verse 5? The one who believes in him who justifies the ungodly. I'm not saying for your assurance, look at your devotion to the church. And look at your life and look at all these great things you do. Assurance first and foremost comes from believing in the God who justifies the ungodly. I'm looking to Christ. I'm looking to Him again and again and again because you know what? I'm ungodly. I need a Savior who justifies, who declares righteous the unrighteous, and I am standing up front saying, that's who I am. I need just such a Savior. Don't believe in a Savior who justifies the godly, or you'll never have assurance. Find a Savior whose name is Jesus, who declares ungodly people godly because of His godliness. Assurance comes from that. First and foremost, a second place where assurance does come is seeing the effects, seeing the results, uh, seeing, seeing the fruit of what happens when you've been justified as an ungodly person. And what that ends up being is you do see fruit. You do see life change. You do see the work of the Spirit in your life. And secondarily, not primarily, secondarily, you can say, you know, my life isn't the same because of Christ. But don't assume the because of Christ. Make sure you see the because of Christ. And then you say, because of what he's done, my life is different. The Spirit of God is working. I I see the fruit of the Spirit. It wasn't so good yesterday, so I was sure to look at the objective work of Christ. But I do see life, signs of life. but I would go so far as to say if you don't see signs of life, you better keep looking to the God who justifies the ungodly and you need to believe genuinely to not have dead demon faith like James chapter 2 talks about. Remember 1 John chapter 3 verse 10? I have this bad habit of saying remember. (sighs) Because some of you don't know and some of you do, so... If you remember... 1st John chapter 3 verse 10 says the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. How about that? The children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Say so how can I have assurance that I'm not going to hell? Look to Christ, embrace him, and if you really have genuinely have embraced him as your savior, it will be obvious. And in 1 John, it deals not only with what you believe, but it does actually talk about things like your love for other Christians. And your living. We just have this horrible habit of mixing these two up or not putting the priority where the priority needs to be or we forget about the secondary life part. And we need to remember both. We need to remember both. Finally, what about best-selling books on hell? Well, I think I'm going to write one. <laughs> I have been asked about this maybe more than anything else during the series and I just said I've gone out of my way not to mention them. I just don't want to give them any airtime. Um, the most recent one, the author had already written horrific anti-Christian theology in his Christian best-selling books. And so, it's no news to me that he's going to write a book about hell that is filled with more Christ-denying, Bible-undermining error. And so, that's all I really want to say about that. Um, and if you don't know who I'm talking about, um, praise Jesus. Um, but I want to say one final thing and look at Luke's chapter 16. Verses 27 to 31. And I will ask you to go ahead and turn there. And then we'll wrap things up. Books about the afterlife. Should be suspect first and foremost. When the apostle Paul went to heaven. Guess what? Jesus said. You can't talk about it. Probably pretty safe guess that if God takes you to heaven, you don't get to talk about it either. But we're not talking about that. We're talking about hell. Typically, when someone says they died and they they saw hell or went to hell and they come back and now they're going to write a book, um, they say it's it's to warn people about what's to come and Jesus is sending them back to warn them. And uh, let's just make sure we see right through that for what it is. In Luke chapter 16, the rich man and Lazarus, we look at this parable in chapter 16, verse 27, and he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that they may, so that that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. 29 says, But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. You got, you got that right? They have the Bible. Huh. Let them listen to the Bible. They have Moses and the prophets. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. It's an evangelistic reason. 31, he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, that's shorthand for longhand for the scriptures, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. They don't believe it from the Word of God. They're not going to believe it. And so let's stop playing games and trying to make money in the name of God in heaven and hell. And let's preach the gospel from the Bible with clarity, knowing full well that as Hebrews 9.27 says, it's been appointed for a person to die once and then comes judgment. And I want to quote Jesus one more time. Repent. Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. Let's pray. Father, thanks for a rich time together in this study together, contemplating issues and thinking and praying and being stirred. Grant saving faith to those who are in desperate need of it. Grant repentance and grant a Christ-honoring disposition to those who know the Savior, even as it would pertain to this issue. May we find ourselves very troubled and not comfortable and not at ease. For your name's sake, we pray. Amen.